I have heard that there's a Chinese curse that goes like this. May you live in interesting times. I think we are living in interesting times. The forces that have been unleashed on the world and in our lives are tumultuous. We are undergoing, we collectively are undergoing uh, financial, environmental, uh, economic, personal, spiritual, political turmoil and unpredictable transitions. And I think that in this tumultuous unfolding of conditions way beyond our personal and even collective control, we sometimes feel like we are mere bubbles on the surface of uh, forces that are just way beyond our capacity to manipulate, control, to harness. And we see that the, what in the Buddhist language are called the vicissitudes of life hold sway. The idea of gain and loss and pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, these conditions unfold and carry us along. And we all experience all of them over and over again. And while we all wish for the pleasant conditions of life, the gain rather than the loss, the praise rather than the blame, the fame rather than the disrepute, we know that it's just a matter of time and we will also experience the other end of the spectrum. We all know this. We all can confirm it through events in our personal history. It is reasonable to anticipate that we'll experience more of all of that. And even knowing that, knowing that they are in our past, that they'll be in our future, does not inoculate us to suffering when they come about. We still experience the pain. We still experience the pain of being blamed. We still experience... And so, to free ourselves from the curse of this interesting time, we need to cultivate qualities of heart and mind that will support us, that will allow us to navigate the treacherous, unpredictable currents that will move our life. And not to belittle or dismiss or make light of the recent tsunami in Japan and how powerless 
all human endeavor was against it or to thwart it or to minimize it. It still had its say on, and still is having its say on, hundreds of thousands of lives. And no matter what those particular individuals in that location had acquired, had prepared for, had acquired, had done to ensure and inoculate their well-being, even in times like that, they failed. And so we can see in our own life, or it would not be unreasonable to expect in our own life, that it's just a matter of time before some form of tsunami comes rolling through our life. And we have to ask ourselves, what can I do to be prepared? Whether it's a financial tsunami or a psychological, emotional, or interpersonal, or career-oriented, whatever it is, we are not immune. George Dreyfus, who is a scholar, Buddhist scholar and translator, says that happiness is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill, but it is a sense of well-being. And I would add that it is a sense of enduring well-being that is not moved by these changing conditions. Tonight I want to speak about what we individually can do to prepare contingency plans for the trouble ahead that will allow us to maintain a sense of well-being in the coming unpredictable, unknown, but inevitable challenges ahead. What can we do? What personal qualities would make it most navigable, if you will, to make it most likely that we would be able to endure with a sense of well-being even in the most trying of conditions? And this is our challenge. This is our work. This is the path of awareness to cultivate those qualities of heart and mind in our already well-established lifestyle that will enable us to live well or with a sense of well-being in spite of whatever conditions arrive in our life. I think for a moment of people you know, and they may be personal friends or acquaintances or people that you've heard of, or even historical beings like you know, Mother Teresa, whose compassion was phenomenal, or Jesus, whose love was extraordinary, or Martin Luther's 
kings whose commitment to the truth and to speak truth to power was, well, unshakable, and many others. When you think of the good people in your life, and bring it close to home even, who among your friends and family or neighbors, co-workers, do you see as having those qualities of a good human being? And if we were to identify what qualities these people possess or display or act on or value, I think we'd arrive at some common agreement that people who are kind and generous and loving and truthful and live with integrity and are energetic and responsive and understanding and patient are displaying or developing, acting on the best of human qualities. And these qualities are recognized worldwide in every culture, in every religion, every spiritual tradition. Those who live in this way or with these qualities of heart or who have developed these qualities of heart are displaying, are manifesting, are valuing the best within us. These qualities in the Buddhist tradition that we teach from are known as the forces of purity because they are the forces unleashed in the mind when the mind is freed of attachment, aversion, confusion. Parami also points to the highest or the best. And it's recognized that these are the highest qualities of heart and mind that we can develop. There are 10 of these qualities that I want to identify. Generosity, of course, being one. Living with integrity, another. And speaking the truth. Also, the the ability to let go, to know and to act on what is enough. Understanding or wisdom and energy, the willingness to meet the moment are also two of these qualities, patience and resolve. The resoluteness of mind to begin what we, I mean, to end what we begin. And so too, loving kindness and equanimity or a balanced mind. These are the 10 paramis or perfections, forces of purity which are the path of awakening of the Bodhisattva in order to become the Buddha. It is said that the Bodhisattva underwent or undertook hundreds of lifetimes willingly enduring all that came in order to perfect these qualities of mind, willingly accepting the 
challenging conditions to cultivate these qualities of mind to such a degree that they became the default setting of the mind where truthfulness or generosity or patience was the first recourse of the mind in a challenging situation or every situation. We may see, of course, in our own lives that we are sometimes (coughs) kind and understanding and patient and generous. But it'd be hard to say that any of them were the default setting of the mind, the first response in a challenging situation. A few years ago, I, I began to notice something in my life that, particularly when I went to Portland, Oregon, and I go there frequently uh, each year, and I stay downtown, or I am downtown, and there are a lot of street people. There's a lot of homeless people. There's a lot of panhandlers on the streets of Portland, as there is, well, everywhere. And I noticed, I began to notice that I didn't really want to see them. I didn't really want to deal with them. I didn't want to acknowledge them. I just was kind of willing to deny that they were there in my mind, even though you can't avoid them. But in my mind, I did not meet them. And I realized that it was causing me to feel a little anxious around them, sometimes a little fearful, certainly confused. I saw my judgments. And I just said, look, this impatience, this fear, this anxiety, this is my suffering. Only I can do something about this. Because there are going to be panhandlers and homeless people in our lives. And others who also provoke or condition that kind of reaction. And so I said, I need to do something about this. And I I made it an awareness practice of just really noticing my reaction. And also proactively reaching out or being willing, cultivating the willingness to meet them. And so I would walk up to them and look them in the eye and connect with them and greet them and speak with them like the very ordinary human being that they are. And it was amazing. These are ordinary people. They're just like you and I, except they happen to be living on the street. And I would talk with them for a while. And, you know, most recently I asked one of them, well, how's it going today? It was kind of a drizzly, kind of cold day. How's it going today? And he said, a little slow today. I'm not sure what that meant for a homeless person, but it's okay. I, I, I kind of got it. And... I always ask, what do you need? Or, how much would you like? And that 
elicit some interesting responses. You know, two dollars to do my laundry to how about a hundred bucks, which I don't offer. But I'm certainly willing to offer something, which is a token of my support for their happiness, my willingness to help them be happy. And what I realized after several dozen encounters like this is what I give them in change or bills or whatever is not as important as the gift of recognition, of connection, just the, the statement, the willingness to say, I see you, I value you, I recognize you, you're not different than me, you know, and I want you to be happy. And that is really the expression of love. What we give when we are willing to meet another is love and pocket change. <laughs> It is so transforming to be willing to look at, it has been for me, to look at my own limitations, my own fear, my own judgments, and to act on them. Because in the exchange with street people now, we both come away with an enhanced and active, joyful sense of well-being. Nothing has changed. Their conditions are the same, my conditions are the same, except we've taken the opportunity to support our sense of well-being. We have this opportunity available to us all the time. And it doesn't cost that much. We, we don't need to go to any other workshop or self-help you know, training. It's just walk down the street and connect with people in a very human way. And when I look back at how this all came to be, it was because of being aware. Being aware, not of people on the street, but being aware of my own mind in relationship to the conditions in my life, which is what we're doing here, is really practicing awareness of our mind in reaction to or relationship to the conditions of our life. Whether we're sitting and walking here in silence or walking down the street where you live. Awareness is awareness. And what you see, or when you see, your own suffering, recognizing that only I can do something about that. That street person isn't going to do it for me. I have to do it. And so it's a recognition that we have within us the power to create a life of well-being. That kind of willingness and that kind of generosity, that kind of love, is practicing well-being. But it takes practice. Because we can continue walking down the street and not seeing all kinds of opportunities to enhance our own sense of well-being.
we've seen these qualities of heart in our own mind. And so we know it's there. The potential is there. The potential to be generous and kind and loving and patient and understanding is there. And yet, we also know that we miss the opportunity often. We don't take the opportunity to really practice these qualities of mind. And so they remain undeveloped. But when we hear about the qualities of well-being or the qualities of heart that support a sense of well-being, then we're informed. And if we seek understanding and guidance and instruction and are willing to practice, then we can see for ourselves, And through our own awareness and the understanding that comes with practice, we will see how to develop these qualities of mind in order to strengthen an enduring sense of well-being in our life. But when you think of generosity, kindness, truthfulness, non-reactivity, understanding, these qualities of mind are not particularly Buddhist. They're not particularly even spiritual or religious. These are pretty ordinary, mundane, kind of worldly uh, qualities of heart that we all have. We all know they're not esoteric, they're not vague, they're not diffuse, they're not remote. They're right here, as close as we are to ourselves. As I mentioned, they're qualities which are recognized by the salt of the earth worldwide. One of our students, several years ago now, who is a consultant to corporations in her field, I'm not sure what it is, also started a a nonprofit to take to corporations the question, what is enough? With all kinds of, you know, corporate propaganda packages and cups and mugs and banners and and the whole whole (laughs) fixings to inspire corporations to ask themselves, what is enough? How much do you need? Well, we could ask ourselves that question. How much is enough? How much do you actually need in order to, well, have a sense of well-being. When does more not contribute to greater well-being? And why pursue it? I was teaching with um, a fellow that I met when I was in the monastery. Uh, He's a Burmese fellow. He also was a monk. And someone asked the question about craving. Is all craving bad, basically? And not to get into the details of the answer, he went into a list of seven different kinds of craving, beginning with the craving 
to acquire and consume something for oneself more than you need that causes suffering or pain to others. Pretty, pretty more than enough. Down to, or I should say, in a gradient, a stepwise gradient to the desire to survive and to provide just that much for yourself. If one banana is enough, then the need, the wanting, the attachment, the yearning, the craving for one banana. Two bananas is a different kind of craving if it's not really needed. And I think that this understanding of living simply, living minimally on the earth, uh, being willing to share the resources that we or our community or our culture, our civilization has, being willing to share it with others is valued. And I think we all would give some sort of at least voice recognition and valuing of it. And then when we look in our heart, we might see that we don't always walk our talk. And so we see that, well, there's some room for improvement. And really to look and see when in your life is acquiring more, not supporting your well-being, but actually maybe burdening your sense of well-being. You got more to care for, more to ensure, more to watch out for, keep from being stolen and broken, and that's not a well-being. And so to ask the question, what is enough, is a practice of well-being, and to really look and see in your life when is enough. But even though we know that these qualities of heart, these paramis, are valuable, that they are within us already, that there is potential, I should say, within us. If we see that, if we recognize that, it takes valuing them personally to recognize them as something we value before we'll be able to choose to develop it. And sometimes we need to really reflect on whether this is something we want to value. Truthfulness. I think generally, you know, if I said, do you lie? Are you a liar? You know, do you value lying? And we'd all say, no, (laughs) I I don't, no. And yet if I said, have you made a commitment to always tell the truth? Not many of us could say yes either. And so we're willing, currently, to hang out in this middle terrain of truthful when it's convenient and otherwise otherwise. That may not be sufficient for an enduring sense of well-being. And while we can say we value truthfulness, we may not be able to practice it as fully as we would like or aspire to, and yet that's the challenge. Are we interested enough in our own sense of well-being and the well-being of our 
tribe, our family, our community, our world, to speak the truth. You know, if we think we'd like to aspire to that, we have to be willing to confront and deal with the conditioning in our culture that values, tolerates, and supports deception. Coming from Washington and Hollywood and Wall Street and anywhere else you look, our culture conditions us to accept and to participate in deception. If you want to aspire to truthfulness, you are going to be going against the grain of our culture. That's something to consider. Whether living what is agreeable to your culture, your, your conditioning, your family conditioning, your personal conditioning, your cultural conditioning, whether you're willing to abandon that for something that you see in your own heart is better, more enduring, is more honest. This path of awareness is not for the faint of heart. It really can bring you face to face with yourself. Will. It will bring you face to face with yourself and your conditioning. And yet, it is only through awareness that we're going to see this. Nobody is going to command you. Nobody's going to require it of you. It's only we ourselves that are have that look within our own heart to see where is the source of distress, where is the source of discontentment, where is the source of unease in our life, and is there anything we can do about it? in the willingness to look at our cultural conditioning. One thing I've noticed in myself, and I notice at large in the culture, and it's increasingly so, is this form of, I was going to say communication, but I'd have to say non-communication, of just shrill partisanship. And it is coming at us all the time. And it forces or it pushes us to agree or disagree with extreme, I would say, partisan positions, economically, religiously, spiritually, socially. And yet, equanimity, or a balanced mind, an understanding, balanced response to the conditions of life is one of the paramis, one of the forces of purification, not attachment, non aversion, non delusion, that supports a sense of well being. Can we see the conditioning in our culture coming at us? 
that is conditioning us to be that reactive? Can we see the reactivity in our own mind? Can we let it go? Can we value non-opinionatedness in order to maybe be more willing to compromise or solve problems? This is the path of awareness. This is the path of awareness that will lead, if we, to the extent that we practice it, to a more enduring sense of well-being. But, as you can see, even from what little I've said so far, the paramis, even though we see them, we recognize the potential within us, we may have made them a personal choice. It takes practice. And they don't just happen by uh, wishful thinking. It takes real practice to train the mind to see the opportunity, not just to react to conditions, but to see the opportunity to proactively act on these states of mind. Interestingly, all of the paramis are practices of the eight factors of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. They all fall within the three trainings of living in harmony by purifying speech and behavior, living with at least access to the secluded mind by practicing awareness, and at least laying down the tracks for the happiness of peace by practicing uh, insight or practicing awareness leading to insight. Interestingly, the third noble truth of the Buddha's teaching is all about letting go. And all of these practices of the paramis are practices of letting go. I'll explain more. In this world, in the, in the way we live as householders, we're not monks, we're not nuns, we're not renunciates to that degree. Nevertheless, we, we do aspire to live a dharma lifestyle or to have dharma-infused lifestyle and to practice, as we're doing here, to really try to see and to liberate the mind from its uh, conditioning, its limitations, its suffering and the causes of suffering. And it is the paramis, the development of these forces, that is the foundation upon which liberating insight develops. To the degree that we develop the paramis in our life, to that degree will we recognize liberation through insight. In Burma, the understanding is, for lay people, householders like ourselves, you know, they practice the paramis at home, at work, socially, for 10 or 11 months a year. And then they go do their annual one to two month retreat. And each year, gradually, the paramis mature and the depth of insight increases. It's not possible to develop the understanding 
of liberating insight without the support of the paramis. As one yogi said recently at, a, at the end of a retreat, I do not want to live this lifestyle of a retreat, but I do want to live with the benefits of it. And I think we all could agree. I, you know, we're not, I don't want to live, you know, silently walking around, moping and doping, and just kind of like, just kind of like, I want to live, you know, a kind of a householder's lifestyle. But I also want the access to my mind, to my heart, that we get here when we pay attention. I really want to see, I want to know, I want to be able to work with and to have a dynamic and live and flexible, uh, pliable mind to work with. Is it possible? You'll have the opportunity to find out uh, when you return home. A few years ago, I was in the midst of a difficult uh, negotiations with the um, water department on Maui, where I live. And for many years, I and my neighbors had been uh, attempting to get a satisfactory water system to our properties. And we had an agreement with the water department, and we were in the midst of fulfilling the agreement. And we just came up against a huge financial hurdle. So I called, asked for a meeting with the deputy director, and I went to see him. And when I went to see him, he had his coterie of advisors and consultants and engineers and me. So I handed out the agenda that I wanted to have for the meeting, and it was a list of a dozen suggestions of possible changes to the system that we were installing in order to reduce the cost so that we could finish the project. So I said, well, this is, this is why I would like to speak with you. You know, the, the, the financial cost has become too great for us to finish the project and we'd like to reduce it. So I said, would it be possible to, you know, reduce the size of the holding tank from 10,000 gallons to 1,000 gallons? And after a five minute discussion among the engineers in reference to the, the rules of the water department, the deputy director said, no, I'm sorry, you know, page 17, rule XYZ, it's not going to be possible. We need the 10,000 gallons, so we can't do that. Okay, well, how about reducing the size of the pipe from 8 inch to 6 inch, you know, and because we're running so many thousand feet, maybe, you know, it would save us, you know, $100,000. And again, referred to the text, talked to the engineers, and after a few minutes, they came back and said, no, that, I'm sorry, that's, that's, that's not going to be possible. And after a few more of my uh, hopeful <laughs> ideas of how we might reduce the, the cost of the system to us, each one being denied, the deputy director looked at me and he said, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to remind you, life's unfair. You're right, I didn't need you to tell me. <laughs> In that moment, the mind was just flooded with 
you know, all the predictable impulses to react, from swearing <laughs> to denial to avoidance to crying to you know just screaming to just get me out of here. And it just scrolled by. It just scrolled by. It just, I could just see him. And the mind didn't grab any of them until it arrived at this understanding. This is the way it is for now. And then my mind said, oh, right. This is the way it is for now. And along with that understanding came the corollary. Well, this can be dealt with. And that was it. And all that reaction that was potentially in the mind just disappeared. Thankfully, I had 35 years of Dharma practice under, <laughs> under my butt in order not to get caught in those potential reactions. But, you know, the meeting continued and on and on it went. And, you know, there was some, you know, resolution. Uh, I can't say that I won or lost, but there was a resolution and we finished the project and it's fine. But so often we are faced with what feels initially like overwhelming challenge. And we see, and we, you know, and, and we see often that we, you know, make a mistake. We just put our foot in our mouth, we say the wrong thing, we do the wrong thing, we, you know, make things worse, we amp it up, we live with the inner turmoil of judgment and fear and anger for days, weeks, months, longer sometimes. All, all of it undermining our sense of well-being. When we take on the task of awareness and bringing awareness into our life, every facet of our life, we live a Dharma lifestyle. You will live a lifestyle of awareness and understanding and commitment, or at least practice those. And this is the way to happiness or an enduring sense of well-being. That is not dependent on external conditions. The external conditions can be challenging or pleasant or unpleasant, or it, it doesn't matter. The sense of confidence and clarity and knowledge about the direction you're going is invaluable. It's just invaluable. And only we can choose that path for ourselves. We can talk about it. You can hear about it. You can read about it. You can practice. You can study, whatever. But it's just developing the awareness to see in your own heart when you suffer and what causes that suffering. We're not going to fix everybody in the world. We're not going to fix all the governments of the world. We're not going to fix the environment to suddenly be Eden again, isn't it? Eden, yeah, the Garden of Eden. It's just not going to happen. Deal with it. And we deal with it in our heart. 
Let's not be naive. Let's let that go. When I say that all of the paramis are really practices of letting go, generosity is obviously the letting go of our isolation from others, let alone letting go of some material goods. It's also letting go of our attachment to things, but it's mostly letting go of the attachment itself, the sense that I can't live without it, or my sense of well-being depends on it. Is there really anything in your life that you can't live without and live well? We may be faced with that choice when the tsunami comes rolling through our life. Renunciation. These are all practices of renunciation, practices of letting go. Are we willing to let go of our views and opinions, our desire to be right? Friends of mine were coming to a three-month retreat years ago, and they live in Seattle. They're coming to Massachusetts in mid-September, staying to mid-December. You know, the weather goes from late summer to early winter. So they were having a discussion, formerly known in relationships as an argument, about... (laughs) About, about what clothes to bring, just what clothes to bring. And they get into a real heated thing, and later it came up in their minds during the retreat. And, you know, one of them was just saying, coming in every report, just saying, God, I'm so steamed up about that argument. He said, she said. (laughs) Until one day she came in and said, you know what, I realize... I had a choice. I could either insist on being right or I could be free. Now think about that. So often we choose to suffer because we want to be right. We will hang on to our opinion and our view and our perception or misperception of things knowing that it's going to cause suffering, that it, we are going to get suffering as a result. And yet, we cannot let go. We often cannot let go of our opinion. The Buddha's path is all about suffering and the end of suffering, really understanding and choosing not suffering. It takes a lot of awareness, a lot of willingness to, you know, let go of naivete. And this is the, you know, the practice of wisdom, understanding, also one of the paramis. Letting go of delusion, of course, letting go of ignorance, of course, but letting go of the naivete that we're going to get our own way, that we're always going to be right. We know more than we're often willing to admit. And it doesn't serve us very well. What is it that you're pretending not to see about yourself? Or that you're denying in your life? It may be obvious to others, but we have to see it 
with our own awareness in order to address it, in order to act on it, to realize this is causing me to suffer, to be unhappy, to be insecure, to be vulnerable, to be um, jerk-aroundable, if you will. People can jerk me around knowing this. Only we can do anything about that. No one else can do it. And that's why this seeming simple practice of awareness is so important. Because in time, it will reveal everything in your heart and in your mind. It will show you all your suffering. It will show you all the sources of your suffering. And then you can do something about it. There's much more that could be said about any one of these ten qualities of mind. But collectively we can see that they are powerful forces. They are potentially... They lie as a potential within our heart. And if we make the choice, we can develop them through practice. And the result of that practice is an enduring sense of well-being. So let's sit for a moment and let the words settle down. By renouncing or letting go of a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness that is greater, then those with wisdom pursue that happiness which is greater, the Buddha said. for listening to the Dhamma. There's about 40 minutes for awareness practice before the last sitting of the evening at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.